0: When they are prayed according to His will. And we need to pray God's will. We need to cry out God's will. We need to know what God's promises are so we can bring them to God in prayer. So that was something specific about an attribute of prayer. And tonight, as John continues to write this letter to the Church of Asia Minor, he goes from a specific attribute about prayer to a specific illustration about prayer. And so that's what we're going to sit on tonight. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask you guys as I pray, feel free to go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, and we're going to dig into this. God, I thank you for giving us your holy word. God, for giving us a light into our feet and something to guide our path so that we can know who you are and that we can know what sin is and how you had to send your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to come and to die for sinners like us. God, tonight as we continue to learn about prayer, I pray, Father, that you would open up our eyes to what it looks like, what it really looks like to pray in your will and to pray for our brother that is in sin. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. Let's begin. We're going to start here in 1 John chapter 5, verses 16, and we're almost coming here to a close of 1 John. It has been an incredible book for our body, and it has been very encouraging to be able to, to preach from. We're going to start here in verse 16a. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, He shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sin that do not lead to death. Now, John here as he continues to write, it's beautiful because he is incredibly consistent as he challenges Christians on what the Christian life should look like. As he begins to focus on prayer, as he's done in all of his letter here in 1 John, he has reminded us that our Christian walk... Our relationship with God does not just specifically deal with God and deal with us, but it also deals with our brothers. And so when John moves in here into an illustration about what it looks like to pray for God's will... He doesn't focus on a specific prayer that is dealing with us, our our money, our time, our family, but he takes it to praying for our Christian brother or our sister in Christ. Again, taking the focus that it is our relationship with God, with us, and then with others. Love God and love people. And so that's where he directs it. And as he talks about praying for our brother, this is what he says. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, shall ask, and God will give him life. So the point is that when we see our Christian brother or our Christian sister sinning, we need to go before God and we need to pray for them. Now, there's a bit of an assumption that's made here, and we need to to deal with this before we really get into what that may look like. And that is that you are living your life in such a way where there are other people who are able to see in to what's happening. And you're able to see in to their life in what's going on. So you can identify the sin that's in their life, in your life, and you can pray for each other. This last Sunday, I had the opportunity to run my third Lewis and Clark Half Marathon. Was anybody there, by the way? Okay, one other person, awesome too. Um, I love doing half marathons, which for some of you may sound sick, like I've got something wrong with me. But... In this, this marathon, it was, it was a little bit different. It started off the same way that almost all of my half marathons thus far have, have started off. And in mile one and mile two, and if you've ever run a race, you, you know that this is the case. Like, your adrenaline is just pumping. Like, you, you are so excited. In that race, there's literally 15,000 people that have all gathered together, and they've all got the running gear on, and they're wearing their iPods, and the energy is just, it's loud, it's awesome, it's exciting. It's a lot of fun. And so in mile one and mile two, man, I just felt amazing. I felt like I could run for 30, 40, 50 miles. And then mile three, I began to kind of ease into the rhythm. Mile three to mile eight, I, I felt good. You know, it, it wasn't easy, but what I often do is I'll, I'll look out at something in the distance. I'll look at a sign or I'll look at a, a tree that's, that could be a mile off, and I'll just begin to focus on that thing. And I'll just run towards that, and that's all I'll look at. And I won't look at anything else around, and I'll just try to get into this rhythm where it's just me and God, and I'm just finding my stride, even though there's still a lot of people around me. And that's exactly what happened at that point. I felt good. My pace was good. Everything was going well. But then I got to mile nine. Not so good. On this course, as it winds off of the 370 bridge and then wraps around towards um, North 5th Street, North 3rd Street, I'm sorry, what happens is you go off into this cornfield. And so you're, you're running like on this little two-lane road in the cornfields, like out in the middle of nowhere. By that time it's gotten hot and all the other runners that are around you, they've kind of dissipated and they're, they're in different directions. So you kind of begin to feel alone and you're, and you're in the middle of nowhere and my muscles begin to, to start cramping. And then my, my mouth is, is dry, and I, and I start getting dizzy, and I'm, I'm looking around, hoping that there's, there's other people around me, because when there's other people around you, it encourages you, that there's people with you that are, that are running together. And things just went downhill from there. I started getting passed by old dudes. I started getting passed by ladies. No offense, ladies. I mean, you're great runners, but no offense. You know, no offense. I started getting past by turtles. It was bad. Like my pace just straight up dropped. I ended up finishing the race 10 minutes later than I had the year before. There, there's a lot of things that I could attribute to why I got slower. But here's the big thing. Two, two things. I didn't train nearly as hard as I had the year before, which is connected to the second thing, and that was I didn't have a partner. The year before when I had been training, I had been training with a partner And this year, the person that I was supposed to run with broke their shoulder, and then my partner, who I usually run with, was on the Leaders retreat, and so he wasn't there with me. And so as I got to mile nine, this is generally what happens at mile nine. You look over at your partner, and they look over at you, and they're like, no, you don't. You're going to finish this race. And you do it. You don't drop your pace. You run hard, and you gut it out. And when you don't have somebody running next to you, It's a whole lot easier to just throw in the towel. And that's exactly what I almost did. I wanted to quit. It's just like that as we look at what John is saying here. As Christians, we are called to live our lives in such a way where people have an open window into being able to see the life that we're living before them. And we have a window into the lives of other people, but what we like to do is we like to cloud that window so people can't clearly see in. We like to have our windows tinted so that people can't really get a full view into our life, into what's going on. And so when we do that, and when we're caught in sin, people can't look over at us and go, dude, are you doing all right? Are are, are you okay? Can, Can I pray for you? But we want to protect ourselves. We want to keep it hidden. And John assumes that followers of Christ will be living life in such a way where other people can see them and where we can see other people so that when the time comes, when you get to mile nine, you pray. You pray that God will bring you through. Are you living your life in such a way where other Christians can see your sin? Are you living in community in such a way where you're asking people how they're doing, where you're following up, where you're spending significant time building relationships so there's actually somebody that trusts you enough to say, you know what, I'm struggling, and I need you to pray for me. Do you have an open window into your life? Now, as he moves on here, there's another huge point that's being made. He says that when you see a brother committing a sin, not leading to death... You shall ask, and God will give him life. Now I want to focus on this Greek Greek verb here, ask. The Greek verb is aiteo, and it literally means to beg, to call, or to crave. And so what John is saying here is that when you see a Christian that is sinning, this is what you do. You go to God, and you ask God to give them life. That's the first response to seeing another Christian, another brother, or another sister in sin. Now, we need to just get really vulnerable right now because tonight, for most of us, if we were completely honest, that is not our first response to seeing our Christian brothers and sisters in sin, is it? To go before God and to beg that God would do something in their heart and that God would give them life. You're at Pizza Hut, hanging with that friend that you love. And on his eighth trip back to get a full plate of the meat lover's heart attack, you just sit there and you watch. And under your breath, you're like, fatty. I can't can't believe he's going up for another trip. Instead of sitting right there in your chair and praying that God would call your friend to glorify him by eating in such a way that would honor God, crying out for your friend. You're a female. (laughs) And you're texting back and forth with one of your girlfriends. And you get a text and it's about another one of your girlfriends. And your closest girlfriend says, I can't believe this, but so-and-so just said that you are a gossip and she can't trust you and you look at your phone, and you're like, oh no, she didn't. Oh snap. And in that moment, instead of taking your Crackberry and putting it down on the table, and spending some time in prayer for your Christian sister that just said that you are a gossip and that you can't be trusted what you automatically do is you take back the phone and you start texting all of the different things about that friend that you don't like. Oh yeah? Well, look at the one who's gossiping. Oh, do you know what she said about you? Our automatic response is not to get on our knees and to pray for our Christian sister in sin. It's to tear them down. And by doing that, we take ourselves right there with them. Guys, it's like the times where you receive the internet accountability report from your accountability partner. Many of the guys that are in here, including myself, use a software called X Software where it gives a monthly report of all the websites that we've looked at. And you get that report and you begin to look at it. And as you're looking at it, you notice that your accountability partner looked at three different websites that all had pornographic images. And as you look at those images, your first thought is, Dude, you really messed up. Man, I'm glad that I didn't look at anything nasty this month. And then your second thought is, I better sit down and send them an email so I can confront them about the websites they looked at because you probably didn't think I was going to catch these, but oh yeah, here they are. And so you type the email and you accuse them and you confront them about their sin, which you need to do. You need to confront when sin is sin. But you miss a vital step which is getting down before your computer on your knees, maybe laying your head on your chair and crying out that God would strengthen your friend in his struggle with pornography. That God would help your friend through the way that he's helped you through with this struggle that you've had for years and you still fall into sin sometimes. But that God would be glorified in your your friend's life. And that he would use you as an instrument in love to go before your friend and say, I love you. You're in sin. And we need to talk. But instead, we automatically go to confrontation before we go to prayer. And John says, you need to go to prayer whenever your Christian brothers and sisters are struggling in sin because God delights to give them life. There's another Writer that talks about this, James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. When you have sin in your life, go before each other and confess it that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We're called to go and to intercede for our brothers and sisters in sin because there is great power when a Christian who is made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ, goes before Christ in praise that God would give their friends grace to overcome the sin that is in their life. This is a specific example of what it looks like to pray the will of God. God wants you to come before Him and to intercede on your friends' behalf so that He can give them life. Now, when Mark taught this last time beautifully on this text that was previous to this and he gave out the promises there were several promises that we can look at as Christians and we can pray and there were a few promises on that sheet that I want to give before you right now so that you can look at as they specifically deal with praying for our Christian friends that are in sin Psalms 34 4 God would you deliver my friend from evil Isaiah forty, twenty-nine. God would you give power to my friend because right now they're faint And they need you. John 16, 15. God, would you guide my friend in truth? Because right now, they are struggling. 1 Corinthians 10, 3. God, oh God, would you help my friend escape from temptation? 1 John 1, 9. God, would you draw my dear friend into repentance so that you can forgive their sins? When is the last time that you prayed for a brother or a sister in Christ that was in sin? Do you even know the sins of your brothers and sisters? Have you cultivated that type of a relationship? Moving on here to verse five sixteen, There is a sin that leads to death. I do not, do not say that one should pray for that. This is the part where I just go ahead and call Jamon up and he starts to play the guitar and we go into the response. Did you guys just read that? This text is a little bit tricky, isn't it? Like this this is one of those verses that causes guys that preach expository to sometimes wish that they could go back to, to preaching topical, you know? This is, this is a hard text. This is a hard verse. Let me share with you what, what is being said here. <clears throat> to try to put some some meat behind in defining this what john says here is that we need to pray for our brothers and our sisters in christ that are sinning but there is a sin and that sin leads to death and what i'm saying right now is i'm not saying that you pray for that now the automatic question i think that that we should begin to wrestle with is we're saying what, what is this sin that we're not supposed to be praying for? Because he doesn't define that sin, does he? It's kind of like Driscoll says. He says, there's a whole bunch of different roads, and one of them has landmines. Which one has landmines? <laughs> I don't know. Good luck. You know, like that, that's what it feels like. Because he doesn't define it and say, here is the sin, the sin that leads to death, that I'm not asking you to pray for. So we need to wrestle with this. And we're going to do a little bit of theology work here. And I want to challenge you. This is the moment where like, we're tempted to let our eyes roll through the back of our heads and we get that glossy, funny kind of look and we're pretending that we're really listening, but we're actually thinking about all the things we have to do tomorrow. Don't do that. Okay? Come with me for just a second as we do this. Okay? What I want to do is I want to give you four different schools of thought, four different options of what this sin might be that he's talking about the first one is this, mortal sin. And I'm going to have a little definition up here on, on the screen. Mortal sin is, the way that I'm defining it, is a really bad sin. Okay, that's like saying really wet water. We're saying like really white albino, you know? Like what, what does that mean, really, really bad sin? There was an idea that there were different classifications of sin and there were many early authors that began to, to perpetuate this idea, but it was a guy that was called Tertullian that really began to put um, a list together and say that adultery, idolatry, murder, these, these things, these sins are, these are the mortal sins. These are the sins that when you commit these sins, if you don't confess them before you die, these sins, no matter what you've done in the past, they'll send you straight to hell. And then there was an idea about other sins called venial sins, which were sins that were not quite as bad. They were like the the little white lie and stealing a, a little pack of gum. But if you stole enough pack of gums over the course of time, that would turn into a mortal sin, which was really, really bad. Now, as you journey through the Old and New Testament, we do not see a clear classification that Tertullian does here is he sets this up. And, and I know that for many of you, this may be a little bit of a sensitive subject because some of you come from Catholicism and you come from a background that maybe has perpetuated this idea. And what I want to share with you today right now is that there is not a sin in your life that has the ability to separate you from the love of God if it is confessed of and repented of. And when you are a follower of Christ and you have received Him, there is not a sin that you will do that you will be worrying about daily that you believe is going to somehow take you away. It's going to snatch you out of being a Christian. In the Old Testament, a perfect example of that is David. King David has sex with another man's wife and then after he gets her pregnant, he kills that man through orders and war and God forgives him and God loves him. In the New Testament, we look forward to Peter, a guy that had rejected Christ three different times openly before people and yet he goes on to be the one that God builds his church upon. There is forgiveness for these sins that some people have called Mortal sins. And I don't just want to give you a few examples, but I want to take you specifically to a scripture here to be able to look at this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. From John. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not a typo. All unrighteousness. So if you're here tonight and you've bought into this idea that was perpetuated by some of these false teachers throughout the years that has said that there is a sin that you can commit that completely separates you from being saved by God. If you come to God and you receive Him as Lord and Savior of your life, I want to encourage you with this. God's bigger than that. God loves you. God will take the sin that's in your life. No matter if you have murdered a person if you have committed adultery with another person's spouse, the most heinous thing that you have ever done that nobody knows about, and you can take your mind there right now, God has enough forgiveness to forgive you of that. He does. The second idea here of a possibility of of what this might be is what many have said is the sin of apostasy. Now, this sin, if I were to define it, is a person who becomes a Christian and then they change their mind. I was on YouTube a couple of weeks ago and I was watching some different videos that were actually people that were trying to argue against the Christian faith And and I find these videos really interesting because I want to know how to be able to talk to a person that is arguing against the faith. And so sometimes I watch these videos to help me learn to be able to how to talk to people that are hostile to the gospel. In the very first words of this person's videos, he was going to try to disprove Christianity was, I used to be a Christian. I listened to that. And I was like, really? How did you do that? You see... It's impossible for somebody to used to be a Christian. Amen? You can't one time be a Christian and then no longer be a Christian. After I heard that, in my mind I thought, why would I listen to any more of this? Because this person can't even argue from a biblical understanding of Christianity, so how in the world are they going to argue against it? John's whole theology all along is that when you are born of Christ and the Holy Spirit has come and has put a heart of flesh in you, it is impossible for you to apostatize. You can't do it. You can't walk away from the faith. You know why? Because God won't let you. He's holding you in His hand. And He's not going to let you jump out. He's not going to let you fall out. If you are a follower of Christ, God will keep you to the very end. And I don't want to just say that. I want you to see it in Scripture. So look at these Scriptures with me that John has already talked about here. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, the Gnostics, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain to them that they are not of us you see they were never a part of the gospel movement they were never christians in the first place so when they went out from us it just proved that they were never of us first john 3 9 no one born of god makes a practice of sinning for god's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of god when the gospel seed is planted in your life it will produce gospel fruit. You don't plant a cantaloupe and then grow a cucumber. If it's the gospel seed, the gospel will be the gospel, period. 1 John five eighteen. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. John actually says that, by the way, here in the next chapter few weeks in the next few verses because I believe that in part he wants to return to this idea that it is impossible to think that in this passage he's talking about the sin of apostasy you cannot not be a Christian when you are a Christian it's like a man saying that he's going to become a woman it just doesn't work you can put parts wherever you want to put them but in the end you're still a dude you know it's the same way you can't be white and then one day be black. Much love for all of the white folks and our African-American brothers and sisters here. I'm pretty sure that they're tired of white people trying to be black. Okay, you, you can't do that. If you're white, you're white. If you're black, you're black. Amen, brother? He's like, yes. Waving, yes. Yes, amen. You can't do that. Now, you can, you can try. I mean, you can say it. You, you can try. But in the end, it is what it is. You're either of God or you're not of God. There is no middle ground and there is no other way. So it's not that. That's not the sin. The third thing, and this is I think this is a possibility, in fact, to be real with you guys, up to this morning... This was, the the third thing was the thing that I was going to argue for tonight. And then through a lot more prayer and through some additional study this morning, I don't don't think that this is it, but I'm going to say that this is a, a possibility of what the sin unto death could be that is being talked about here. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Many of you have heard about this. An idea here comes from Matthew 12 and another passage in Mark. Now, Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Andrew, go ahead and go back to that for just a second, is attributing Jesus' works to Satan. In Matthew chapter 12, there is a a man that is demon-possessed, and he's blind and he's mute. And Jesus shows up on the scene, as he beautifully does, and he causes the man to be able to speak and to be able to see, and he removes the demon from him. And when the Pharisees witness this, they say, You do that work by Satan. And Jesus says that it's by the Holy Spirit that he does the work, not by Satan. So the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is attributing Jesus' work and his miracles and what Jesus has done to being that of Satan in Satan's work. Now, in Jesus' response, this is where the whole thing gets really interesting, and many of you have probably wrestled with this verse before, but look at this in uh, chapter 12, verses 30 to 32. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is Jesus here speaking, by the way. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, Grudem talks a lot about, Wayne Grudem, who wrote Systematic Theology, talks a lot about this issue here of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit And ultimately, what we have to discern is that it is a known facts about Jesus and what he's done, coming and living on this world and dying for sin, and then it's attributing the miracles that he has performed to Satan. Now, when when you look at the Church of Asia Minor, and this is why I'm saying that I don't believe that this is the one, is that there is never a clear point where we see these Gnostics actually saying that the work that Jesus was doing is from Satan. And we have to remember, as John is writing this, he's writing against their false theology specifically. So it doesn't seem like it would make sense here that John would be calling them on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because we haven't seen that yet to this point. So here's the last one. And this is the one that I would say that that I think that it is as I've tried to wrap my mind around this. It is the denial of Jesus Christ. Persistent rejection of the command to love Jesus and to love people. You see, as you think about what was happening during the time that John writes this, this is exactly what he is fighting against. This is exactly what he's riding against. I want you to look at a scripture with me. 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love The brothers, whoever does not love, abides in death. This is the only other time, and this is important, okay? Check this out. This is the only other time in the whole writing of 1 John that John connects sin and he connects death. The same way that he talks about there being a sin here that leads unto death. And this is what he says. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love our brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now, he's not saying that you abide in a physical death, which that's true. But he's saying that if you don't love your brothers, you abide in a spiritual death. You are cut off from God and living in eternity with him. Now, if you've been here at Matthias for long enough, and maybe this is your first time, I hope that you understand this and you hear this, but when we talk about loving our brothers and our sisters in Christ, it's always connected to loving God. You love God and you love people. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, we see another picture of what John is saying here as he connects these two things. This is what he says. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as He has commanded us. The command that John has given is that you love Jesus Christ and you love others. This is what he's trying to say to the church because this is what's happened. There's a group of people that have risen up in the Church of Asia Minor, and this is what they've said. Jesus is not God and sin is good. That's what we believe. That's the foundation that we're going to stand on. Jesus is not God, and sin is good. Now, the people that were saying this were people that had heard the teachings of Jesus Christ. They had heard about the miracles, they had seen the power of the evidence of changed lives in front of them. But yet, they would still say, Jesus is not God. And sin is good. And the way to salvation is being enlightened in your mind. It doesn't have anything to do with the confession of sin. So as John writes this, and he speaks against this belief, I believe that what he is saying is that he is not encouraging the church of Asia Minor to continue to pray for them because that group of people have stirred up a bunch of junk in the church. They've begun to lead people astray. And it's become clear that no matter how many times this group of people hears the gospel, they're going to continue to say that Jesus is not God and we can do whatever we want. They were crippling the church. There were people that loved this group. They had relationships in that group. And when these people did it, it was devastating. And so I imagine them praying for their brothers that they would come back, that they would repent, that they would confess Jesus as Lord. And as John writes them, he says, I'm not saying that you continue to pray for them anymore. I think that there becomes a time when there is a person that is in your life that has heard the gospel message over and over. And they have continued to not love God and to hate others by destroying their life and every life around them that you would get to a point where you say God's will be done. I've got a person in my life that I love very, very much. This person is a dear friend of mine. This person grew up in a Christian home. They went to every corny vacation Bible school that there ever was. Not all vacation Bible schools are corny. I'm sorry if I offended somebody. They went to Sunday school. They've heard all the Christian music. They've had the gospel shared to them by their parents, by family members, by loving friends over and over. I sat down with this person myself repeatedly. And I've shared with them my love for them and my desire for them to know Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior of their life. But he continues to reject over and over. And not only is he rejecting the good news of Jesus Christ, but he continues to wound his family. He hurts his mother. He offends his father. He hurts everybody that is in His path. Every decision that is made is a decision that is based upon self. There is no regard for others. It is a life that is toxic. It is a life that hurts anybody that gets close enough to it. And as much as I love this person, as much as my heart is bled for them, and as many times as I have gone before God and I have prayed, God, would You save this person? At this point, God is not. And so there was a point in my life where emotionally and physically and spiritually, I was so tied into the situation that it was causing me grief. And I was losing sleep. And it was hurting. And it was taking so much spiritual energy to focus and to pray for this person that there was a moment where I felt like the Spirit said to my heart in my life, my will be done. And so I got to a point where I said to myself and to God, God, I love this person, but they are completely in your hands. And I've taken my spiritual and emotional and physical energy and I have begun to invest it in other places. Now, I want you to understand that by doing that, I'm not being fatalistic and I'm saying that there's no hope for that person because again, I believe that God can do whatever He wants to save that person from their sin. But what it is saying is it's a declaration to God that God, you are big enough to save this person. And I have done everything that I know to do to lead them to you. And I've, I've bled for them, I've cried for them, I've hurt for them. But you're going to have to do your thing and you move on. And there are many people that are probably in some of your lives right now where you are exactly in that situation. And I'm not saying that you do that carelessly, but there can come a point where the, the Spirit says, move on. And you allow that person to live the life that you're going to live, and you hope that God will do something. I believe that that's the type of person that John is saying. He doesn't say that you should pray for that. Now, he's not saying that you can't pray for that. You need to see that. But he's not saying that you have to continue to pray for that. And I hope that that makes sense. The last thing that I want to share with you tonight as we close in verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. Tonight, you've gathered with a group of people who all of us need to in this moment say that we recognize that we are sinful. There is no list of big sins and small sins and if you do a big one, then that's really bad and if you do a little one, then that's not quite as bad and so God is going to judge you differently. No! All sin is sin. All sin is lawlessness. All sin is unrighteousness. All sin is an abomination to God. God is a righteous God and He can have no relationship with sinners. And so from the moment that you are born, you are come from your mother's womb completely sinful. And you may not begin to see it at first, but from the first moment that your mom tries to lay you down in your crib for a nap and you arch your back and you begin to scream at her. You're sinful. You don't want to go to bed. A lot of the moms in here are like, amen. I know exactly what you mean. From the time that your dad gives you those Gerber peas and you smack them off of your tray and they shatter on the floor like happens to me all the time. It's sin. It's sin. It's sin showing itself in a very early age. We're all sinful. And we've committed sins that we would never want anyone to know about. But despite that, listen to this. There is sin that does not lead to death. Amen. That mention of death is not talking about a physical death because we know that because of sin, Every single one of us in this room at some point is physically going to die. That's the curse that we have for sin. When Adam and Eve sin, God gives them a curse that says that they will go back to the ground and they'll die. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. What is the sin that doesn't lead to death? First of all, it's a spiritual death. There is sin that ultimately is not going to take us to spiritual death. What kind of sin is that? It's the sin that is committed by a genuine follower of Christ. Because a genuine follower of Christ has had their sins paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. He dealt with all of your past sins and he'll deal with all of your future sins And all sin is lawlessness. All sin is wrongdoing. You don't continue on sinning, making a mockery of the blood of Jesus Christ. But you know right now, in assurance, that the sins that you will commit in the future, friends, will never separate you from salvation. Now, tonight, if you're here and you would say, I do not have that assurance. I feel lousier than I've ever felt before. And I praise God for that. Because in that moment, when you recognize your sin and the way that you have committed unrighteousness and lawlessness, if you see and hear the gospel tonight, then I believe that God is drawing you in to a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so if you will repent of your sin that's in your life, and if you will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior that He really came and did what the Bible said that He did. He died for sin and He rose again on the third day. And now He sits at the right hand of God. And you believe that in your heart, then you too will be forgiven of sin. So I encourage you. Right now, what's going to happen is I'm going to have j Mont and Brandon come up and, and play. And if tonight you would say, I want that assurance... I'm going to have all the Lot family leaders and all of our elders stand up here in a moment. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you to come up and say, you know what? I want to be a Christian. I want to know this Jesus that forgives sin. Here's the other thing. Right now, I want everybody to look down. There's a card that's at your seats. And on that card, this is what it says. One side says, I need to confess And the other side says, I need to begin praying for blank. John tells us that we need to be praying for Christians that are in sin. So right now, if you know a fellow brother or sister in Christ that's in sin, and you've been judging them, you've been gossiping about them, you've been confronting them, but you have not prayed for them, then you need to pray. And so I want to encourage you to take this piece of paper and nobody's going to see this but you, but I want you to write down the name of that person that God is leading you tonight to pray for. And here's the other thing. I talked about an open window of people being able to see into your life. For some of us right now, there is sin that is literally weighing us down. You're on mile nine and you've got a lot of miles left to go. And you're sore. You're you're hurting. You feel burdened. You feel like you want to drop out of the race of life and you want to quit. In part, it's because there's nobody who knows what you're struggling with. You haven't confessed it to anyone. Tonight, I want to give you an opportunity to confess. And so, with every single one of these Lot Family leaders and our pastors and our elders that are up here tonight, I want to encourage you first to write down what it is in your life that you need to confess and then you put that in your pocket and you keep that for you and then I want to encourage you to come up and I want you to talk to one of our pastors and our elders as an act of obedience I want to challenge you to bring your sin out into the open so that people can pray for you. If you never bring your sin before brothers and sisters in Christ they will never know how to pray. So tonight It's a challenge. Would you be bold enough to come and say, I'm struggling with sin and I need prayer right now because all I want to do in this moment is I want to quit. Let us pray for you. After that, what we're going to do is we're going to take communion together. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, Jesus is gathered there with his disciples and he says that this bread represents My body that's broken for you on the cross for sin. Sin that will not lead to death. Take and eat. He says, this cup, it represents the blood that ran down a cross. It's the blood that was shed for you, for the sins of the past and of the present and the future. For those that are true followers of Jesus Christ, this blood is for you. Every time that you drink it, you should remember that I died for sin. And you drink it and you rejoice because you don't have to make the payment in hell forever. The payment's been made. That's what we get to do as we celebrate this Jesus and we remember what he's done on the cross on our behalf for God's glory. If you're not a Christian, Please, I encourage you, don't come up and partake of these elements because these are for Christians only. But tonight, if you would come up and you would say, I want to be a Christian, then maybe tonight would be the first night that you'd be able to partake of this meal that has been provided for those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior of their life. The way that we take communion is by intention where we tear off a piece of the bread and we dip it into the cup After you have dealt with the sin that's in your life and you've wrestled with God and you've talked to some of our pastors and our elders and our life family leaders, I encourage you to come and take communion whenever you're ready. Let's pray. God, tonight is yours. And I pray, Father, I pray that you would give us boldness. God, that you would give us boldness to confess the sin that we're struggling with Boldness to go home when nobody is looking and pray, and boldness to love you and to love others. In Jesus' name.